Today, I've titled the message, The Body of Christ. And the text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 31. So let's begin with the reading of this text. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lack it. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Amen. In chapters 12 to 14, we're dealing with a, a new issue that uh, Apostle Paul is uh, addressing. And that issue has to do with the usage of spiritual gifts. It has to do with manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the congregation here in the church of Corinth. And Paul starts off, as we studied last week, in, at the very beginning of chapter 12, that what is necessary when you're dealing with spiritual gifts is that we have to have a proper discernment of true spirituality. We need to understand that when we're talking about spiritual gifts and manifestations, that happen even in other religions. We don't have a total monopoly as Christians on spiritual gifts and spiritual manifestations. Other religions manifest as well in similar types of giftings and manifestations. And so what we need to understand about the gifts is that whether they fit into the criteria of true spirituality. In other words, we have to exercise discernment anytime we're dealing with spiritual gifts, spiritual manifestations of different types. And Paul was very concerned that 
many of these Corinthians were still influenced by their, their pagan past. And they have seen things of their spirituality, spirituality expressions, and perhaps they'll be led astray. And so he indicated very clearly that what distinguishes Christian spirituality, Christian exercise of spiritual gifts, is that we are influenced by the Holy Spirit and our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Let me read for you verses 1 to 3. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one can speak by the Spirit of God and say, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So it is very important that we give our allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is very important that we are influenced by the Holy Spirit. So you see, true spirituality is not to be measured based upon simply personal experience of ecstasy or some kind of spiritual elitistic experiences or even that of the transcendent otherworldliness. What are the criteria for true spirituality? I believe there are three. First, we must lead a corporate life led by the Spirit of God. Spirit-led corporate life, not just individualistic life. You see, the Corinthians were accustomed to individualistic experiences in the spiritual realm. But when they come together as a church now, being redeemed by Christ, they have to learn how to operate in the corporate body. So it has to be the corporate life led by the Spirit of God. And the second has to do with our personal allegiance to Jesus Christ. And along with that, I'd like to say, we have to have personal allegiance to His body, the church. Because that's the expression of Christ here on earth today. And so then Paul discusses the diversity of gifts and services and workings, but at the same time he says, all these are done by the same Spirit, same Lord, same God. He uses that Trinitarian way of expression. Same Holy Spirit, same Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, same God, the Father. But the gifts are diverse. And what really is the purpose of the gifts? And he says, it's for the common good. Is to build up the community. Is to benefit the community. If it creates faction in the community, if it is detrimental to the life of the community, then we are abusing the spiritual gifts. Then he lists nine specific gifts, and I have categorized them into three different categories. The revelatory gifts, that would be the world of knowledge, world of wisdom, discerning of spirits. The vocal gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. And the miraculous power gifts, and that have to do with faith, healing, and miracles. And he says in verse 11, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one, just as He determines. So God in His wisdom and providence, He endows us with these gifts according to His sovereign will. Now, after having said all this, we come to today's text. And here, Paul is providing the proper context for the discussion about the usage of these gifts. 
And he gives an analogy of the human body with its various members. And basically he's drawing a picture of the body of Christ, both the universal and local. Now at this point, I want to talk about the body of Christ, the concept of the body of Christ. Theologically speaking, when we're talking about the body of Christ, we're talking about one of the three ways. In other words, there are three ways of understanding the body of Christ. First of all, the literal body of Christ, the incarnate body of Christ. And this is the most relevant thing about this text, which can be applicable to this season of Lent, and especially this coming week, the Passion Week. Why? Because how could God express His love for us and redeem us from our sins unless He came in the flesh, in the body. And in the body, be willing to die on the cross for us. And how could we know that He has gained all the power and authority defeating the enemy unless He was resurrected in the body? And how do we know that He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings unless He ascended in the body And how do we know that we are going to experience the resurrection of the body as well until He comes again in the body? So everything that Jesus did was bodily. Everything that is significant for us in terms of redemption, in terms of our eternal life, everything has to do with His body. You take the body element or the flesh element of Jesus Christ and we got nothing to ground ourselves in terms of redemption and eternal life. So that's the first understanding of the body of Christ. His incarnation, His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, His second coming. Second way we understand the body of Christ is the sacramental understanding. And Jesus Himself, on the night before He was crucified, He said, This is my body. This is my blood. And almost like in a literal sense, he said that. And that's why the Roman Catholics, they want to take the literally and could only come up with the formula that somehow these elements, the bread and the wine, must have transformed. And they insist upon transubstantiation, that the substance actually changed literally into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Then, of course, Luther said, no, not quite, but I do take the words of the Lord seriously when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. So he's saying, well, leave the elements there, but his presence is alongside of that, in, with, under these elements. So right there, as we're beholding these elements, we are actually talking about the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But as I mentioned last week, I would prefer John Calvin's theory of communion which is basically his body is ascended in heaven, but his body is made real for us in a spiritual sense by the Holy Spirit. So that body is simulated here on earth by the Holy Spirit, so as though he's literally here with us, but in a spiritual sense. So that's the beauty of the sacramental body of Christ, and it is so important in the body of Christ that we take this matter of the sacraments seriously. And this is not just symbolism, not just a memorial service. 
but it should be done regularly as much as possible. I remember for season and time in our church gathering, we had communion practically every Sunday just to test this out. We're not Roman Catholics. We don't, we don't do the Mass like they do, but we want you to try it out as Protestants. Do it on a weekly basis and see how it felt. And we had a great time. I don't think we took that matter lightly. As a matter of fact, every one of us took it very seriously. We engaged in a weekly basis. Even John Calvin said, if we can do it, we should do it every week as much as possible. Third way the body of Christ is interpreted is in the sense of the corporate body of Christ. As the organic analogy of the church. So that literally when we talk about union... With Christ, we're talking about His humanity. Him, having humanity, wants to be united with the human body of Christ, the corporate body of Christ. And that's why we can say He's the head and we are the body and we will be united with Jesus Christ on that day, literally. And in a spiritual sense, even today. So I want to talk about this union with Christ concept a little bit. And then I want to talk about what the dynamic of this life in the body of Christ is like in the following text. Let's begin with verses 12 to 14. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made of a one part, but of many. Now, it is very interesting that here, Paul presents the analogy of the body. And our assumption is, if he's going to present the analogy of body as he presents in other texts, like in Ephesians, for example, he would say this is the analogy of the church. But rather, he says here, just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. He's equating the body with Christ, not just the church. Why do you think he said it this way? Why didn't he just say one body, and that is the church? That's the way we usually understand it. That's the way we theologize this idea of the body, but he says, no, this body is none other than Christ. Now, I believe he's saying that because he wants to show how intimate this relationship between the members of the church, the body of Christ, and Jesus Christ is. Jesus identifies with the body. Jesus doesn't say, I am going to create the body, the church, and then somehow I'm going to relate to it he says, no, from the very beginning, I have such an intimate understanding about your identity in union with me. And this union is illustrated in two senses. First of all, baptism. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. And then he says, we were all given the one spirit to drink. You know, so he's talking about here, baptism, that has to do with uh, water baptism, of course, 
But that is simply a symbolic way of saying that we are initiated into this personal relationship with Christ and as a result of that personal relationship with each other, the body of Christ. And then he says literally that it is as though drinking of his spirit that is being filled with his spirit. You see, when the spirit of God comes, he comes and overwhelms us. So we enter into his spirit. But at the same time, the spirit of God fills us within so, His Spirit fills us. In other words, the Spirit comes upon us and we're in the Spirit. At the same time, the Spirit is inside of us. So, He is within us. So, outside, within, everywhere, we are filled with the Spirit of God. And that's how intimate this picture is. And through baptism, we identify with Christ's death and resurrection through the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, it's as though we are drunken in the Spirit. So through and through, we are filled with the Spirit of God, and we are made one. He wants to make that intimate identification clear in our relationship with Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus. Do you remember Paul, when he experienced conversion on the road to Damascus? Remember, he was struck by this blinding light and he fell off his horse. And he heard a voice coming from the light saying, Saul, Saul, that's the Aramaic or the Hebrew uh, word, his name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Do you remember that? And Paul responded by saying, Who are you, Lord? He knew right away that that the Lord was implying that he was persecuting him. And then the Lord says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now it's very interesting that Saul was not directly persecuting Jesus. He didn't have anything to do with Jesus. He didn't hang around with Jesus during that time. Maybe from far away he's heard about Jesus. Maybe he may have witnessed Jesus personally. In some sense, but there was nothing personal going on. He wasn't personally persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. And yet Jesus says, you are persecuting me. And of course, theologians and scholars have deeply meditated on this text and said, how is, has Paul been persecuting Jesus Christ? And they could only come to a conclusion Jesus so identifies with the church that you harm the church, you damage the church, you damage his very ego, and you damage his very being. You know, the great philosopher, he once presented the idea of the body as the analogy of a city. He says the head is like the citadel, and the heart is like the fountain and the pores of our skins are like lanes and veins are like the canals. And he says, you know, the community or the city is the picture of a body. And then he says something very interesting. If we see a city with, in terms of the analogy of the body, if we understand this in this organic way, then you could never say, hey, 
I hurt my finger and my finger has a pain. You never say that. Do you say my finger has a pain? Children, when you hurt your finger, you say my finger has a pain. Or do you say I have a pain? You know. Right? Whatever happens to your finger, whatever happens to your toe, whatever happens to any part of your body, you say, I have pain. I have pain there. But I, the subject, I have that pain. And this is a very important concept we need to understand. Jesus is saying, I have pain. When my church, my bride has pain. Pastor Jamie really understands that. This past week, he had pain. He didn't go through pain. His wife did, but they are united as one. So whatever Mijin, Samonim goes through, Jamie Moksanim, he's going to go through the same. Or at least he's going to empathize with that. And I don't think he would separate that. Oh, she's going through pain. Oh, sorry, Mijin. She's going through that. No, she goes through that. I go through that. That's how much I love her and how intimately I'm united with her. So it is through Christ, this personal relation with Christ in and with the Holy Spirit that the body can finally be united. So there can be diversity in terms of membership. Jews and the Gentiles, slaves and the free, doesn't matter. But we can be united because we're all linked personally to Jesus Christ by the living, working power of the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 15 to 18, now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them be. There was obviously this tendency in the Corinthian church for people to be independent-minded instead of thinking about the community, instead of thinking about the whole oneness of that body. They were thinking about what they can get out of this or what they can, the body can serve for my betterment. And they were thinking independently Perhaps because of a sense of superiority. We saw over and over that the church in Corinth, many of these members, they were struggling with this issue of spiritual pride. They were competitive, they were jealous, and especially regarding spiritual gifts. Those of you who have experienced that, those of you who have witnessed others experiencing that, there is that tendency for jealousy to come into play initially. And you want to also compete because, wow, they're able to explore that gift realm, able to enhance their gifts. What about me? And if you have those gifts, you feel like you're somewhat superior than others. I have something and you don't. And of course, some people, they were independent-minded because they had a sense of inferiority. They felt worthless. Says, well, I, I don't quite fit in here. You know, you guys are really great, very gifted, but leave me out of this. I, I am not worthy to belong to your caliber. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, 
we all belong to Jesus Christ. And if we all belong to Jesus Christ, then we all belong to each other. And Jesus has placed us, according to his great wisdom and sovereignty, in exactly the places he wants us to be. And what we see today is uh, this tragedy of the local body of Christ tending to amputate their body parts. Whether for social reason or cultural reason, intellectual reason, political reason, and sometimes even spiritual reason. Spiritual elitists wanting to excise those who don't quite measure up. But I personally believe that all differences in any body, in any family setting, can be resolved and integrated through our allegiance to Jesus Christ, reliance on the Holy Spirit. And I always say, especially in marriage context, in family context, the problem is never the ultimate problem. That's never the problem. The problem itself is not the problem. We're going to always have problem in any kind of community, in any kind of family setting, in any kind of local church setting, any kind of societal setting. We will have problems. But the problem itself is not the problem. The real problem is people not willing to work out the problems together. That's the problem. But if we can have faith and trust in the Lord that He will provide the solution for us, He will provide a way to bring forth resolution and somehow help us to integrate into this community, then I think we can have hope in any community type of setting. So the second thing that I want to point out here is that we belong together. We belong to Christ and we belong together. And that's what the local community has to come to terms with. And the family is obvious. Through marriage, having children, we are together through covenant and together through procreation. You know, it just naturally happened that God brought us together. Okay. Another dynamic we want to look at is found in verses 19 to 24. Let's read this. If they were all one part... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. And what Paul is pointing out is, here is that because we all belong together, we must be mutually dependent on each other. In other words, we have a need for each other. And God placed us so that we would fill up the needs of each other. And that's the only way health can be maintained. Think about our bodies. You know that all the members of the body, external and internal organs, they have to work together jointly. None of them work separately. As far as I know, everything from your brain to heart, the lungs, you know, your circulatory system, your nervous system, your skeletal system, muscular system, all the systems, they have to work jointly together. They need each other. 
If the muscles give away, the bones can't just hold that structure. You, you can't bear the burden. You can't bear the heavy load. Okay? And if the bones do not hold the structure up, then, gosh, the muscles going to have to you know, stiffen up and tighten up and do extra function, which it's not hard to do. So we need each other to maintain our health. But I believe that the real reason why we need each other is so that we can enable each other to maximize our potentiality in Christ. I've learned this in marriage. I've learned in marriage that it is not so that we as spouses, we just fill up each other's need. You know, I'm lonely, so I want to get married, and she fills up my need for companion. Oh, she makes good food for me, so it satisfies my soul. Or I protect her, I bring money, you know, to the family. It's not just that. All those needs are very important, mind you. But more important, I've discovered, is that we are there to empower one another. I see certain areas that Esther needs some help in, and I empower her. And she knows that, you know, without her, I would just, you know, Never ever quite grow and mature, you know. And so, so we each other are constantly working on each other to empower one another. And we need to understand that the Corinthian church, the population was very um, mixed and very diverse, but there was a strong percentage of slave population. So there were always these people who were in constant need. And it was the role of the rest of the church members to really take care of the slave population so that they can really, truly have a sense of purpose in the church. And so through the church, through the family, through marriage, we grow and we mature. We learn about communication. We understand one another. We disciple one another. We empower one another. We serve each other and we work together as a team. There are hundreds of reasons why it is important that we be connected together and we become mutually dependent on one another. Let's continue on in verses 24b to verse 26. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So here Paul is talking about the responsibility of taking care of each other, especially when a member of the body is suffering. So that we empathize with one another, we care for one another, we suffer with each other, and if there's time to celebrate, we celebrate with one another. It's like a family. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The spirit of servanthood, the spirit of willing to lay down our lives for one another, that's what causes the body to come together. And it usually happens during the time of suffering. I've been pastoring for many, many years, teaching in the body of Christ many, many years, and I realized how 
powerful it is to be there as the community when people are suffering. And when people suffer, for example, uh, they experience some kind of loss, some kind of sickness, some death in the family, some financial plummeting, something going wrong. That's an opportunity for the church to come together and show ourselves to be the church. And after Paul is talking about this state of union with Christ, that we belong to one another, and uh, we provide for the needs of one another, and we show true concern for one another, then he makes this final comment that talks about the distinctives in terms of roles and functions in the body of Christ. In verses 27 to 31, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Now desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Here in verse 28, we have this listing of the spiritual gifts, but you might have noticed that this listing is somewhat different from the earlier listing in verses 8 to 10. He only repeats three of those gifts from the previous list. Miracles, gifts of healing, different kinds of tongues. Some people say prophecy, he repeats here in terms of the office of the prophets, but I don't think that's what Paul is trying to say. But he gets three gifts from the previous list and he lists them again in this list. And then something very similar to what we find in Ephesians chapter 4, he has this leadership office of apostles and prophets and teachers. They're listed as well. And then something very similar to from Romans 12 or 1 Peter 4, he talks about the gift of helping or serving and then the gift of guidance, or governing, or administration. Okay. And I just don't have time to expound on each of these gifts, but each of these gifts are very, very important. But what he's trying to point out is this. He's saying that God has systematically placed these gifts, one by one, according to His plan. So he says, first the apostles, and then second the prophets, Third, the teachers. I don't think he's talking about priorities. I don't think he's, he's talking about hierarchy of the structure. I think he's talking about the sequence of events that happen. You start with the apostles who lay the foundations for the church, who preach the gospel and make sure that the gospel is pure and sound. And most of these apostles basically turned out to be itinerant preachers. Helping the larger, the whole body of Christ. And then he lists all these gifts systematically, one by one. But what he's trying to point out is exactly this. In English, it's translated this way. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? And based upon the way he's presenting it, we know that the answer is in the negative. No, of course not. In Greek, it's very 
obvious. He uses the term me pantes, not all. Not all of these people are operating in these particular gifts like this. In other words, some are operating in these gifts, some are not. And God has placed each one of them accordingly. But, then Paul says in verse 31, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And some people quite can understand what Paul is saying. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts? Is this in the imperative or is it in the indicative? And I used to think it was in the imperative, like Paul is commanding everyone, be eager to desire the greater gifts. But it could be simply in the indicative sense that you are desiring for greater gifts anyway. And it is good to have some kind of holy ambition. Others are rising in this area. Others are developing, cultivating those gifts. All of them are functioning and contributing to the body of Christ. Good! Eagerly desire the greater gifts. But then, he points out the essential way. And he says in verse 31b, the most excellent way, this I will show you, to be the way. And that is the way of love, which he expounds in the entire chapter 13. So, what do you think in this section that we have studied, this text that we have dealt with, the Paul is trying to say about spiritual gifts and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit? I believe he's trying to say the same thing that he's been saying all along, previously, and later on, as, as we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 11 to 13. I just want to read this section for you. So God himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What Paul is saying is we don't have room to talk about just individualistic stuff, just your own gifts, just your own abilities. All our giftings, all the manifestations in the Holy Spirit have to come together to serve the common purpose of building up the body of Christ. And what I see in this text is that, that if there are people who are weaker in their faith, then our job is to serve them so that they will mature. So that we can all become equal in rank, equal in our fullness, equal in our maturity, so that the body of Christ can be perfected. So if we see a weaker member in the body of Christ, and because of that weak member, the entire body is weakened. For example, let's say um, one member of the body of Christ is a, a weak knee, and the knee gives out all the time. Everything else is built up. But that weak knee is constantly, constantly failing us. Then the whole body is going to plop because of that weak knee. 
So Christ being the head and Christ being in charge of the whole body, he says, everybody focus on that weak knee. Strengthen that weak knee so that we as the whole body can be mobilized. And if we find a weak arm, then we have to strengthen that arm. Weak neck, you know, we have a disc problem, and that's affecting our posture, affecting our vertebrae, then we got to work on that. So let me just simply uh, summarize. When we're talking about the body of Christ, we're talking about something that is so intimately related to Jesus Christ. He's not just talking about an organizational model. He's talking about in an organic sense. This is me. This is me. No difference in the sense of me portraying myself to the world. As a matter of fact, I only have you. I'm here in heaven. You're my hands and feet. You're my lips. You're my heart. You're, you're my brilliant ideas and my potential. I want to do it through you. So if you're united to me, then you must be united with one another. If you belong to me, then you belong to each other. That means you have to provide for each other's needs. You have to be concerned for each other. And all of these diverse gifts that I have given you, all of them systematically are to be used to build up my body. Especially those who are weaker. We need to work on them, build them up, bring them along until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I don't think that vision could be possible if we have somewhat of an elitism, the people who are running, running, and doing, you know, doing really good in spirituality while people are, you know, falling behind. And that is not a good picture of a church. If people are falling behind and few people are running the race, they have to be all built up. So the weakest be raised up in rank and stature and their abilities so that we can all rise to that fullness, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.